Amen. Grab a Bible, if you would, and this morning, would you join us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. On Sunday mornings, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians verse by verse. We pick up where we left off last week and want to continue uh, this study of this, this letter and long that God would be meeting us and communicating things that He has in store for us, even at this very space. But we want to, again, just take a moment to uphold that really it's God's Word that we want you to pay attention to. So if you already have opened up a Bible that you brought, if you didn't bring one, there are Bibles in front of you, page number on the screen so you can get there rapidly. You want to use an electronic device and open up a Bible app on that. You can do that one way or another. What we're really longing is that the Word of God would have your attention. And the Word of God would be that which works into your life this morning. So we want to just invite you both to have it, see it, follow it along. If you're joining us in the overflow or you're joining us online, it is just exactly the same invitation that you would have a copy of the Scriptures and that you would follow and that God would speak to us uh, this morning by His Word, which is alive, and His Word, which is active. So let's take a moment, even before we dive into this, and simply ask uh, that He would do that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we acknowledge right now that you're God. We acknowledge that your word is good and that it's powerful. You likened it to a sharp two-edged sword that pierces into our hearts, that changes us from the inside out. Just cutting between just the, the thoughts and even the intents of our hearts. God, you're the only one that can do that, and you do that through your word. Lord, I ask for that this morning. In many ways, such a space that you would tenderly and gently do that operation on the inside of us, cutting away, doing good work that needs to be done, drawing us towards the life that you have for us. I ask that you would do that now. You give us ears to hear. You give me words. And then you go far above and beyond that you would communicate your word to your people in a way that just lands this morning, effective, drawing us to what you have for us. God, we ask for that together, and we ask for it here, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I would like to invite you to overhear a conversation. Now, right off the bat, I just want you to understand, that's always a little bit awkward, isn't it? I mean, have you ever been there? Like, we were there this week. We were at a restaurant, Joanne and I, and we were there, and there's, like, people having a conversation, and we can hear everything they're saying. And it's like, luckily, it was just kind of like a Nate conversation, but it's like, we, we just looked at each other like, sorry, like, like, we're trying to have a conversation, but they're so loud. I mean, you know, just kind of, it wasn't you, okay, just, just so nobody feels like that, but it, you've never been there, you know, and you kind of like, you're overhearing everything somebody else says, and you're like, I don't know if I should be privy to this conversation. It's even a little bit more just difficult when the conversation is tender, when there's, you know, anger and tension and even tears, and you overhear a conversation, and you're almost like glued to it, but you're like, I shouldn't be, Liz, I don't, should I, I, I that's kind of where we are. We're about to get to hear a conversation, and it's going to be one that has tension and tears. It's going to be one that was real, and in one sense, almost just reading it feels awkward. I mean, if you've never read through this section in 2 Corinthians and, you know, and didn't feel that, you might feel it this morning. Like, okay, that feels, I feel like I'm listening into a conversation. I don't know if it's, but it's written for us. It's written for us to hear, and then in the midst of that, for God to work. Now, there's a bunch in it. We'll do our best to trace some of it, but in the overall, I want you to hear the conversation and then 
take from it because God wants you to overhear it for a purpose. And it's going to land differently in our room this morning in different spaces, but we're longing that God would do that. Well, before we look into the conversation, just quick reminder who it is. This is the Apostle Paul in a conversation between the church there in Corinth. Now, Paul had planted this church. It tells us in Acts 18, we covered it in our first study in 2 Corinthians, that Paul had gone to the city of Corinth, was the very first person uh, to, to bring the gospel and preach Jesus uh, there in the city. People got saved. He begins to see the church built up. He stays there for a year and a half. Uh, just investing into the church and seeing the church have a good beginning. And then he moves on. He moves on on his second missionary journey, moving through modern Asia, uh, you know, in the midst of that, modern, sorry, Asia, then tur- modern Turkey now, and, and just continues taking the gospel. But as he's gone, this conversation begins. It begins when the church of Corinth sends him and they write him a, a list of questions, things that they, are, they find confused now that he's gone, as well as in the midst of it, people bring to him some problems that the church was happen, having. So Paul writes to them in response. He writes what we know as the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that answers questions. He says, you know, hey, I heard your questions and here they are. And he answers questions about, you know, just things that they were struggling with, from spiritual gifts to, to, to different things of, kind of some of the tensions that were in there, meat across the idols, a number of questions that they were having that he needed to give them answers to. But at the same moment, he has to confront some very serious problems that were taking place in the church, and that's relevant for us right now because one of the issues he had to confront was a space where they were condoning sin in the church in a very disastrous way. Now, it would be helpful for you to see that, so I had you open up to 2 Corinthians. We'll be back in a moment, but go left to 1 Corinthians and go to chapter 5 with me, if you will, for a moment just for the beginning of this specific conversation and being able to follow it along. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul begins it there in verse 1 and says, It is actually reported, like people have, you know, they brought me the news and they're telling me what's happening there. It is reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. I mean, he says, they brought him the news, and you just got to feel this for a moment. He says, you guys are allowing some sexual immorality in the church, but it's, it's like so heinous that it's like worse than the world in some ways. I mean, like, here's this space, and you just got to imagine a man have his father's wife, just the way it's worded, probably his stepmom, I guess. Kind of weird situation, like, you know, they've hooked up, and now they're living together, and it's like, I can't even believe this is happening. But what's worse is that's what's happening among you. It's happening in the church. It's happening in the people, and their response to it is the main problem. Pick it up there in verse 2. He says, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Going down to verse 6. He says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Yeah, we watch this whole thing, and the problem is that 
not only are they, is it happening there, instead of being grieved by this, instead of mourning over this, they're arrogant. That's the idea of puffed up. Being puffed up has the idea of having a big head kind of a thing, where they actually are glorying in this. He says, your glorying is not good. Now, I find myself wanting to say that this sounds almost unthinkable, but here's what I know. Actually, it isn't. I mean, you guys know this. I mean, this is our world. I mean, this is our world like right now that in some senses, as people get worse and live more immoral lives, sometimes people like, you know, even from a church perspective might come out and say something like, and there are churches that are saying this, and so again, I know this is like really relevant, where they're like, aren't we gracious? Look at what a gracious, loving people we are. Like, we have this horrendous person, and we have welcomed them with open arms, and this is like God's grace on display, and we're so good, and they're patting themselves on the back, and Paul is just like, ah, oh, no, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. What, what you're doing is not good. You should have rather grieved over this. It should have broke your heart uh, that someone was living in such sin. And so he just tells them that they need to radically and rapidly practice church discipline on this man. Go there and understand it. Pick it up there uh, in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. He says, For I indeed, as absent in the body, but I am present in the Spirit, have already judged, though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together among, among, with my Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Wow. Okay. To understand this conversation that we're overhearing, we have to briefly talk about church discipline. That might be a subject that you understand well. It might be a subject that you don't understand at all. It might be one that's confusing, and there's no way uh, that we're going to you know, adequately answer all the questions and, and be able to see all that's done. But there's a few things I want to make sure I just very quickly say. Church discipline, it's a biblical thing that God causes, calls us to do, but its aim is always restorative. The aim of church discipline is to do everything we can to get the person who is the offending party, the person that we are doing that, we really want to see this go good in their life. In fact, again, that's what Paul said. You saw it there in verse 5, but it's good just to see it again. Deliver such a one to Satan. That's kind of the picture of church discipline, like, you know, put him into that realm for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus, in the day of our Lord Jesus, that it may happen. It's not a promise it will happen, but it's like, this is what we want. Like, this is what we're doing. So understand this, whatever church discipline is and however it's supposed to work, that's its intended aim. It's meant to be something that would wake somebody up from the rebellion they're living in with the goal of bringing them back. Now, Jesus actually is the one that gave us a very gracious process for this. In Matthew 18, we don't have time to go into it, but if you're unfamiliar with it, you can go back to it. And he says, okay, if someone's sinned, and, that's, and, and it's a, you know, kind of one of those sins, then you go to them alone. And if that works, it's done. Like, love covers a multitude of sins, we're done. Nobody else ever has to know. If that doesn't work, then you take somebody else. And if that doesn't work, then it's time for the church to be involved. And then it's time as a church issue that you bring that person into a place of church discipline. 
Now, in the most simple form, the idea is to now treat that person who is living in an unrepentant lifestyle of sin as an unbeliever. In fact, to do it very strongly and even maybe a little bit more so. That in one sense, now it's that space of being that person that you're seeking to communicate to them that that's where they are. Now, we just need to pause and try to say a few things again because I know there's no way for me to fully unpack this. And I'm going to probably raise more questions than I'm answering, but I just want to quickly say a few things. For starters, let's just be clear, there is nobody in this room that is without sin. Like when we talk about practicing church discipline on somebody who's, who's, who's you know, living in this unrepentant lifestyle of sin, we're not saying that any of us are perfect. In fact, none of us are. And if I'm not careful about that, somebody's going to be here, it's like, that's me. You should do that to me because I'm like, yeah, like you, you we, we struggle with sin. In fact, you know, Hebrews tells us that we can even have, you know, a sin that so easily stumbles us. And so stumbling and struggling, hey, that's us. That's not what we're talking about here. Here we're talking about somebody who is unrepentant, like they're doing the wrong thing and they don't care and they don't want to change. They don't intend to change. Uh, they want to stay in the lifestyle they're living regardless of how you feel, and they want you now to embrace them in the lifestyle they're living. Like, that doesn't sound relevant, right? Um, so, uh, you know, and so he says, that's the problem in the midst of this whole thing. He says, that's, that's what they're wanting, but you can't do that. For somebody who is saying, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm you know, sleeping with my girlfriend, I'm living with my boyfriend, I'm practicing, uh, you know, kind of unrepentant homosexuality or whatever, and then they want to say, hey, treat me as a, as a believer. We cannot. Uh, you know, God knows, only God knows their soul, and that's a whole other, you know, deeper study. But from us, there's that space that church discipline is basically seeking to communicate as clearly as we can to somebody who's in that space, that is who you are. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions. In fact, church discipline is really messy. It's really messy because life is really messy. And there's no easy answer to all those questions, but it's enough to understand the point. The point is redemptive, and, and, and it's treating that person, you know, is this. Now, we're not talking about how we deal with the world. We're talking about somebody who's saying, I'm a Christian, but I still want to keep living the life that I'm living. In fact, he gets it really more clear that way as we go on, pick it up where we left off a moment ago. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people in the world or with covetousness or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I mean, we're not talking to like just broken people in the world because like where else would you go? Like, it's, it's like you know, that's not it at all. We're living in a broken world, and we're seeking to reach them with the gospel. But now, verse 11, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Like, they're saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I want you to accept me, who is sexually immoral, immoral or covetousness, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul is telling him, hey, this is absolutely what you need to do. You, you need to do this. This is biblical. This is what you ought to do. Now, again, there's so many questions that that raises, but let me just quickly say this. We do this. We try to do this. We have done this, and we will do this. Uh, now, as a church, I would just very clearly say it this way. We probably haven't always done it well. 
that's just true because we, we just don't, but we are, we do seek to do this. We, we do seek to do this. In fact, let me do it right here and right now. Like, not calling anybody out by name, but let me just make it clear. If you're here and you call this your church and you want us to think that you're a believer and you're right now living in unrepentant sin, like you're living with your girlfriend, you're sleeping with your boyfriend, you are practicing, you know, homosexuality, you are living a, a lifestyle of a drunkard, then I want to say it right now, that is not how we see you. It, either we don't know that what you're doing or we've handled it poorly, but right now, as clear as I can tell you, biblically, the way we look at you is say, hey, we cannot recognize you as a believer. That means you cannot serve here. That means we tell you, hey, don't take communion with us. Can you attend? Well, honestly, again, church discipline's a little bit awkward, but I will say this. We want you to hear the gospel. We want to tell you we love you. We want you to get saved, but you just need to know every time we look at you, that's what we're thinking. We, we want you to get there. We, we, we're trying to treat you that way, and if you didn't know that, hear it now. Like, like that's what we believe, that if you're living in an unrepentant lifestyle of sin, we cannot see you as a believer. And by God's grace, we will not. Did I say that okay? I mean, it just seems like a hard thing to say. You know, it's like a hard thing to unpack in the midst of it. But I mean it as kindly, as lovingly as I can. Not because we want to be cruel, but we want to lovingly tell you we want your soul. We're more concerned about your soul than we are your happiness. Uh, and, and we'll do what we can in order to do that. And by God's grace, we try to. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do. And again, if that's where you are, that's what you're supposed to do. It's hard. It's hard in friendships. It's hard in family. It's no easy answer to all these things, but when it gets down to it, we cannot treat somebody as a Christian who's living an unrepentant lifestyle of sin. We cannot do that. He's telling us, no, and, and how that works out into your life, hey, walk in that. Well, that's what Paul is doing, so he had written to them that letter. He'd written to him a letter, you know, answering those questions and then confronting that, telling him, you have got to deal with this. But here's what we know. It wasn't received well. They didn't take it nicely. Uh, the church there in Corinth, instead of repenting of their sin, they dug their heels in. They dug their heels in and they got mad at Paul. Uh, they got mad at the messenger. They, they got frustrated with him. They, they, they felt that he was wrong. Uh, and it creates this really big space of tension and angst between Paul and the church in Corinth. And we've seen that a little bit. We will see it more in 2 Corinthians. Now, it's very, very possible, probably even likely, that Paul immediately made a beeline to them. And that he goes and makes what he calls a second visit to them that's not recorded for us in Scripture. We know that he had a second visit because as we get to the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm coming the third time. And he's going to talk about one of his visits being incredibly painful. So as we put the details together, it seems like as soon as it went badly, Paul stopped whatever he was doing. He made a beeline over to Corinth, tried to fix it, tried to walk through the problem, tried to do that. He might have even written another letter. It's a little bit debated by Bible students, but honestly, it's not necessary that we even land on that because either way, they stayed entrenched. They stayed angry. They, they disagreed. They didn't respond. It created more tension between Paul and the church there, and it created more space where he's telling them, hey, you guys got to do this. And they're like, no, no, we don't. Like, you're wrong. Uh, and, and, and it created a, a really hard space. Now, that's kind of the background for the conversation 
because now we're in 2 Corinthians and we pick up the conversation. So if you're there in 1 Corinthians, now you can flip back to 2 Corinthians uh, where we are in chapter 1. It might be helpful just to back up a little bit and uh, say it this way as, as Paul was explaining it starting in verse 15. He says, And in this confidence I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and to be helped by you on my way to Judea. He says, you know, here's my plan. I was planning. I was planning to come see you. I was planning to stop and see the church in Corinth, but if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, it didn't happen. Like, Paul changed his mind, and, and he didn't show up. He didn't come and visit the church uh, when the time they thought he would, but now he tells us why. So we pick it up there in verse 23. He says, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but you are fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who's gonna be, who is it to make me glad? But the one who is made sorrowful by me. I wrote this very thing to you. Lest when I come, I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy. Having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Okay, so we have this conversation and now Paul's just explaining. He's saying, this is why I didn't come. This is why I didn't come because, boy, the tension was, was, was so big. And if I came again, it would just have been a sad visit. And so he said, that's what caused me not to show up. By the way, that's just a little bit of help in the midst of it. We think about tensions. We think about even dealing with these things. There is something about this. It's as if Paul was saying, hey, we already said everything we needed to say. Like, you know where I am. I know where you are. And why would I come and just, you know, throw more wood on the fire of our tensions? Like, I, you know, we've already made it clear. Like, we both know where we stand. And so I'm just not going to continue the argument. Um, and so I stepped back and said, you know what, I'm not coming. I, I'm not going not, not to come and just make that worse. And so he didn't show up. In fact, it's good to co- notice a couple things in that. Go back to the end of chapter 1, where he says, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. I mean, he just says, hey, God knows. I'm not just saying this to kind of manipulate you right now. That was the reason I didn't come because I love you, because I care about you, and I didn't want to bring you to sorrow. Not, he says in verse 24, that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Hey, that's a good little quick nugget. Paul says, hey, it's not that we were over you. It's not that we had dominion over you, and that's actually a really good space to quickly talk about in church discipline, because sometimes that's where it gets to a rub. That in some place it becomes out like, who gives you the right to tell me what to do? Who gives you the right to, you know, have authority over me? It's as if you could hear the church kind of one of those, like, who, who died and made you the boss, you know? I mean, what, what gives you the right to tell me what to do? And Paul says, that's not how I'm coming. I'm not coming with authority. I'm coming because I love you. I'm coming out of compassion because I care about who you are. And that's a good space to even hear it. That there is a space where God is calling us to step towards these kinds of things, not in a you know arrogant, authoritative way, but in a way that says like I really care. I, I really care about who you are. I really care. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a fellow worker for your joy. 
Like, I, I'm longing for that. But he says, I determined not to, you know, that I wouldn't come just to make you sad. Like, it's not good what I'm going to do because that, you know, I, that's not the way. I, I'm longing for joy, but we can walk in that together. Well, we get that. So Paul lovingly just tells him, hey, that's why I didn't come. That's why I didn't do this. In fact, he unpacks a little bit more and takes us beneath the surface of his conversation, of his confrontation of their sin, and it's worth your just noticing it. So pick it up there in verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. And if anyone has caused grief, he has grieved, not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. So speaking about this man who'd sinned and says, hey, if anybody's grieved him, it's like he's grieved all of us. But in one sense, what's so powerful here is, again, Paul takes us behind the scenes and he just helps us to understand that even the heart and motivation of church discipline and the way that he did it, it wasn't casual and it wasn't arrogant. In fact, he was doing what he had wished they had done. He had told them, you know, you shouldn't be proud of this. It should break your heart. It should cause you to mourn. Paul mourns. He says, I just need you to understand. It tore me up to write this letter. He says, I, I had to sit down there and do this. He says, it was much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with a lot of tears. Like I wept over having to do this. I, I wept over what was having to be done. I didn't do this easily. I didn't do this arrogantly. I did it with a great amount of heart and compassion. And that's just good to hear because there's something we're being meant to be being drawn to in this. And as we continue walking through this conversation, we're going to come to a place that we're going to want to see that we need both of this, where, hey, you know, yeah, sometimes it calls us for hard truth. Sometimes it calls us to speak hard things, but man, it's supposed to be done in a way that isn't meant to be arrogant. And this is going to be important for us, because again, I'm just telling you, for some of you, you're hearing this, and you might be hearing this wrong. Like we talk about church discipline, and for some of you, you know who you are, you're like, yeah, go get them. Like, you tell those sinners what they need to do. And, you know, and, and I just want to tell you, that's not Paul. It's not his heart. He's like, I, it, I hate this. I hate having to do it. It tears me up. And, and that heart is meant to be our heart. It's meant to be our heart because ultimately, it isn't about being right. It is about, I want you to be right with Jesus. I, I, I'm longing for you to, I mean, that's what Paul was after. He says, I wanted you to do well, and I cared about what you were, and I longed to see that happen, he says. You know, he says, I longed to see that. He says, I want you to know, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you, he says at the end of verse 4. So now we get a chance to see it. Paul has, has avoided the visit, but he's let him know the heart that he has behind it. But here's a really cool part of the story. The church in Corinth changes. They repent. They recognize that they were wrong and Paul was right. They recognize that they were handling the situation wrongly and they radically fix it. In fact, he's going to talk about it more later in, in, in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, but let's fast forward and get a preview. Go with me to your right now, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul is talking about how they responded to this. There in verse 8, he, Paul just says it this way. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Hey, pause there. I just, I, I like this. I mean, he's like, 
even if it made you sad, I don't regret it. Well, actually, I kind of did. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, and if you've ever had to do this, it's like, I wish I'd never even, why, you know, it's just a, a lovingly honest, like he didn't joy in doing this. He just had to do this. He says, I made you sad. I don't regret it, though I kind of did it first. But I perceive, he says, that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you are made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss uh, from, from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wow, okay, that's just a really good description. And maybe you already can imagine it, but I just want you to try to imagine it. So the church was wrong. Uh, they, they had it wrong. They were, they were, you know, playing lightly with sin. They were letting this man uh, live with his, you know, stepmom and, uh, you know, kind of boasting in the whole thing. And now they recognize we, we did that wrong. Like we have not held true uh, to the truth that is true in Jesus. And they radically changed things. And just feel, try to imagine with me if you can what that looked like as he describes it. He says, I want you to see it. Verse 11, observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner? What diligence? Like all of a sudden they were like, okay, we are not, we're not missing this any longer. Like they, they became, dil what diligence it produced in you? What clearing of yourselves? It's like we're going to make sure that we're not guilty. We're going to do everything it is we need to do. What indignation? Now they're frustrated. They're mad at sin. What fear? What vehement desire now that they, they long there? What zeal? What vindication in all things? You proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So they don't just repent. They fully fix it. Like they do whatever it is they need to do. They get, they, they, they okay, what do we need to do? Let's do it right. Let's, let's represent Jesus well. They radically undo all their mistakes, which is just a beautiful space. I mean, it's just a really, really fun space to see. And so Paul is able, you know, just to say there, therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. He says, here's the thing. I wrote to you because I really cared about you, and I really wanted to see, it, to see it happen. That was our main aim, is to display the love of Christ in this regard. So, I mean, this is a pretty cool story. I mean, they've now repented. They've turned back uh, to agreeing with Paul, and, and that relationship is being restored, and that's a big part uh, of the letter of 2 Corinthians behind a lot of those details. But the story gets one better. Because not only did they repent, it would seem that they practiced the church discipline that Paul told them to do. They deliver this one to Satan, as it were. They treat him as an unbeliever. They, you know, kind of put him out of the recognition that he's in that. And wonderfully, it seems he actually repents. Now, I don't want to, you know, make it sound like it always does this way, because church discipline does not always do this. I mean, people don't always respond well to it. Sometimes when people are church disciplined, they just get mad and they leave. And they're like, well, we didn't have nothing to do with you any longer. That's kind of been more <laughs> our, our experience when we've done it. Still right to do it. But this time it actually worked really, really well. So the man repents. 
He repents of his sin. He repents of what he's doing. He turns back to righteousness. So now we pick up the story. Go back with me over to chapter 1. We watch this whole thing happen. We, we see the, the, the things that, that are there and uh, get to see the, the things that are part of it. Sorry, I don't know what that, where that went. Um, so they have all this. They, 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 they're broken over there. He seems to, to disp- you know, respond to all that. Now Paul has to call them to forgive him. So now go back again to the beginning of it, the beginning of the chapter, or chapter 2, where we picked up and, and left off. He says it to us this way. In verse 6, he says, The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for, to him. So pause and catch it for a moment. So here's this kind of funny thing. I mean, if you're kind of paying attention to this conversation, it would seem now the same group of people that were treating him with too much grace, if we could say it that way, kind of okaying his sin, now they're keeping him at arm's length. It would seem that now the guy's repented, and they're like, oh, no, no, you're the guy that caused so much problems. Like, like you're the one that, you know, so now you're kind of like on the, you know, you're like second-tier church, whatever that is, and now they're treating him with, with distance, and Paul has to step into this and say, absolutely not, absolutely not. Pick it up again as he's saying this, verse 8, says, therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For I indeed have, have, have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So we'll come back and talk about that last part for a moment. But what you just need to hear right now is that as strongly as Paul had to tell them to practice church discipline, it's as strongly as he has to now tell them, hey, forgive the guy that sinned. Like, welcome him back in there. I mean, it's as strong. I mean, if you were reading 1 Corinthians 5, he's like, you know what? I'm there with my spirit. We're going to judge that person right now. He's out. And now he's like, hey, I'm there with my spirit, and we're going to welcome him back in. Like, guys, we need to kind of welcome this guy back in. We, we need to forgive him. We need to bring him back in. And it's this beautiful space uh, of where that's happening. Now, maybe that makes sense. Maybe just in, in the weight and the feeling of all that's taking place in this, you're kind of hearing the wonder of this. You're kind of hearing the weight of this and how it played out. Now, once more, I want to just pause and say, hey, this is a really cool story in part. I mean, it's kind of messy and it's kind of ugly, but it's really kind of cool because it works out. It doesn't always work out that well. I mean, not everybody always responds. And so I really appreciate what Paul said in the midst of this. He said it there in verse 9. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are and be obedient in all things. What did he just say? Well, church discipline, it doesn't always work, but we're meant to be obedient, whether it does or not. It, you know, it's like, hey, I, I wrote to you, and, you know, even if it didn't do this, we should have done that, because God told us to do that, and he said, I wrote to you to, to kind of bring you to that. Now they're there, but the beauty is, again, it works. 
So let's kind of just come back and look over this whole conversation. So again, it's this weird space where you're kind of listening to a conversation, and it's just kind of flowed in both directions. I mean, I've kind of tried to help you walk through the whole thing so you could feel kind of the, you know, back and forth between the whole deal. But if it's kind of landing, it's kind of funny. Because in one sense, again, it's as if you're watching, especially this church in Corinth, you know, kind of move from one extreme to the other, you know, like being too, too gracious to now being too hard, and that has to be part of the, the story. It has to be part of what's there. In fact, I want you to think about it this way. I've kind of had this graphic that I've been using at the bottom of the screen. I'll bring it up here now, and it's just this idea of where grace and truth come together. Grace, grace meaning unmerited favor, like we don't deserve it. By grace, we're saved through faith in Christ, the love of God being poured out. That's grace. That's how we're saved. Truth is that which is true and righteous and perfect and and, and right in the midst of that. And the longing is, is for these two things to come together. Now, they come together in Jesus. In fact, I like the way it gives it to us in the Gospel of John. So John is unpacking Jesus and kind of telling us about his birth And it says, you know, in the word of God, speaking of Jesus, it became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know if you can feel this, but it's, it's, it's one of these moments that you should be able to say, wow. He says, this is the glory of God. This is where God is so beautiful. He is gracious, fully gracious, and he is true, fully true. And both of these come together in Jesus. And maybe you already know this, and the danger is that maybe you don't, but I want to make it really clear. He's the only one. He's the only one. It's not true anywhere in the world, and it's not true in you. Because I know that somebody's going to be listening to me, and you're going to be like, yeah, they just need to be more like me. I mean, I, that's me. I am, I'm gracious and true at the same time. No, you are not. You're just lying to yourself. I mean, you're just thinking you're doing better than you really are because you're not. You're, you're not. We, we struggle with, with extremes all the time. But in Jesus, they come perfectly together. In fact, I like it where it goes on to simply say, and of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. Like he comes and grace pours out from us and on us. The law, it tells us, was given through Moses. But grace and truth, they come through Jesus. Don't come any other way. There's no other space it can be found. There's no other place in our world it can be found. There's no other space in us it can be found than Jesus does it in us, that he brings us to a place where grace and truth are both known and fully expressed. It's only found in Jesus. Jesus is the only one that does it. He does do it, which is amazing, which is absolutely amazing and incredibly good. But Making it again clear, that's where you and I are meant to be being drawn, to be more like Jesus, to to be gracious and to be true. In fact, I like the way it gives it to us in the book of Ephesians when it talks about, you know, kind of the goal of our Christian life. It says that we ought to be speaking the truth in love. Man, it's crazy. The wind's even shaking the screen, huh? So, sorry. Uh, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head Christ. Like, we're supposed to be coming more like Jesus, We're supposed to be growing up to be more like Jesus. That's kind of the goal of our life. And he says, if that happens, then you're going to speak the truth and you're going to do it in love. You're going to be able to say that which is right and pure 
and holy, and you'll never, you know, do something that isn't that, but at the same moment, it will be so coupled with grace and love that it will mark everything. Like, that's what the Christian life is meant to grow to, and that's where it's meant to become, and, and that's where we're needing to pursue, and I think in some ways what I'm wanting to do this morning is to make sure you see that, feel that pursuit, and then long for that growth. So we think about this whole idea, again, of grace and truth, and we've watched this whole conversation between Paul and the church in Corinth, and I don't know how it landed for you. But here's what I believe. I believe God's calling us to this place where we would know grace and truth, and it's probably landing differently in this room. Now, it may be an oversimplification, but just let me simplify it that way. It's probably landing in one of three ways. See, some of you, uh, you know, you hear what I'm saying, and maybe by propensity, maybe by, by your, your nature, maybe by how you are raised, maybe by your personality, you are a person that is almost always gracious. You know who you are. It's not all of you, <laughs> but, but you, some of you, you know who you are. So you have this propensity uh, to look at the world and look at people, and you always want to give them a benefit of the doubt. Like you are, you're like, well, you know, we just got to be loving, you know, just want to be loving, I want to be kind, you know, I, I just want to make sure that people know that we love them. And, and so here's the thing, God would be speaking to you and saying, hey, you've you got to get more towards truth. So imagine it this way. It's a goofy illustration in my head. I was trying to think of a better one, but I want, want you, almost want you to picture this mountain peak that we're being invited up to be more like Jesus, but there's this mountain peak and, and the, the sides of the mountain, they're like, you know, ice or something. So, you know, or, or mixed with ice and shit. So you're, you're trying to go up the mountain, you know, to get to the top. And some of you, you're just always on the gracious side. I just want you to hear it. I just want you to know it. And then just say, hey, you know what? Your goal is to always be pursuing that. And you know who you are because you'll make some growth and you'll slide back down. And you'll make some growth and you'll slide back down. And you're always like, I know, I'm supposed to be more truthful. I know, it's hard for me. You know, and so when we covered the first part in 1 Corinthians, you're like, that's me. That's me. I'm the person that, you know, just lets people get away with all kinds of things. And I don't ever tell anybody, you know, I confront them and tell them, hey, no, actually, I don't think you're a Christian because you're living so badly. I mean, you just have that, you know, just, you're just like, no, I can't, you have a hard time with that conversation. And so you're just like, ah, you know, I don't know. Hey, if that's you, just, just, just inviting you. Come, just, just make, see the pursuit and say, it's not letting go of that, but you need to come to the top. There's others of you. You know who you are. It's not all of you, but it is some of you where you're like, nope. Truth is truth. Like, you know, I don't have any problem telling anybody where I think they are. Like, I tell them to their face, you know, like, I think you're an unbeliever. I think you're going to hell, like right now. I mean, I mean, you don't have any problem with that. I mean, you just kind of like black and white. It's black and white. That's what it is, bro. And, and, and you just have that. You have no problem with that. But your problem is that you lack the grace. You lack the, the place where you're really loving people, wanting them to come back to forgiveness, where you would have the heart of the apostle that would say, this breaks my heart to have to tell you this. I want good for you. And the moment you repent, I'm going to be the first one at the door welcoming you back in. The moment you stop sinning, I'm going to be the first one who, who, who's there. That's what God's wanting you to be. And so for some of you, you're just going to have to recognize that's me. And you know, Jesus is fully loving and fully true, and I'm kind of going up the mountain, and then I slide back down. And I'm going up, and then I slide back down. Hey, I'm just telling you, you'll never get to the pinnacle and stay there. And so for some of you, you just need to recognize your struggle and recognize why you're struggling, and then continue to ask Jesus to make you more like him. So some of you are always gracious. Some of you are always law. And then some of us, 
we're like the church in Corinth. We're just back and forth. It's like, now I'm too gracious. Now I'm too hard. Wait, now I'm too gracious again. Nope, now I'm on the wrong side. I mean, it's just this funny, like, it's like you're watching a tennis match. It's like, okay, so a moment ago you were too gracious, and now you won't forgive him? I mean, dude, like, what's, I mean, you're just watching this whole thing go back and forth, and it's kind of funny. I, I think it's kind of funny, but I also just recognize, man, that's so much the struggle. It's like you climb up the hill, and then you slide down the other side. And you're like, darn, it slid down the other side. And you climb back up the hill and then you slide down the other side. It's like, I can't, you know, staying at that space is so hard. It is hard. And if you're in that space, it's still just helpful to recognize it. Like, okay, I see where I am. I, I know I'm wanting to be a representative of Jesus. I want to speak the truth in love. I want to deal with sin in a way that he deals with it. And, and that pursuit is, is a good pursuit because that is who he is. That is what he is, and that's what we're watching happen between the Paul and the church there in Corinth, and it's a good process. But when it can happen, how beautiful it is. Now, I thought about uh, if we had time that I was going to have you guys go with me and, and read the entire psalm. I don't have time, so I'm going to give you some homework. The homework is I'd love you to read Psalm 85 later today. Psalm 85, it's a great prayer. It's a repent, it's a, it's a revival psalm. We actually quoted from it last week um, when uh, we were in, in our prayer time, and, and I, and I get, told you that there's a space in it. In fact, one of my favorite verses is found right in the middle of it. I'll put it on the screen. We're in Psalm 85. Uh, just the prayer is, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? It's a great prayer. It's a prayer that we ought to be praying. I mean, I think about things in our nation right now. If we hear hope of maybe revivals or ever that happening, things from Kentucky or maybe even like the Jesus Revolution movie, if, if that would do good and God would revive us, like we should want that. We should be saying, God, we want life. Like pour your life, revive us, like, do it again. God has done it before. You ought to be praying. Hey, God, do it again. Now, the rest of the psalm goes through and, and gives a little bit of warning to people that have been revived, like, hey, if you get revived, don't go back to sin. Like, like God rescues you, don't go backwards, which is a good little just nugget that we could spend time on. We don't have time. Uh, but instead, I want to take you to the fruit of it that he says, okay, if this happens, if we get revived, if God does it, then he says, here's what would happen. He says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed I just love this. I mean, I don't know how to say it better, but I love it. I mean, it's everything we're trying to say this morning. It's like when we get more like Jesus and, and, and we get revived, it's as if we're merciful and true and they've come together. It's always that way, by the way. If revival's a real revival and whenever revivals have been real in our land, it's not either or, it's a both and. It is both incredibly loving and, and, and the love of God is known, and His mercy is so, but holiness and righteousness and truth, it's as if they're both held, and they come, it's not an either or, it's like this, wow, these two things that seem sometimes, so, they're, they're coming together, in fact, I like it when He says, this righteousness, this righteousness and, and peace, it's as if they kiss, <laughs> it's as if these two things have, have who, who were different so far, they've, they've come together, and I think what I'm wanting to say this morning is that's what I'm longing for. I'm longing for it in my life. I'm longing for it in your life that we would be a people that this would be known in, 
that we would be a people that represent Jesus well in this, that we'd be a people that are you know, seeking to display the grace and truth of Jesus, which is what Paul's dealing with here with the, ch- the church in Corinth in a way that's genuine and real. So that's kind of where we need to end up this morning. Uh, we've walked through a bunch of stuff. You can close your Bibles, your notebooks. I do just want to say this. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. Hey, part of all of this is to come to you and tell you we want you to see Jesus through us. And I want to tell you right now, grace and truth are found in Him. It is one of the most radical and wonderful things to find one who is perfectly righteous and true. And the moment that you step towards Him, it is incredibly scary because it's as if He knows everything about you. Yes, He knows everything about you. And your sin becomes exposed. You become known. He, his holiness grows. And, and truth becomes real. But at the same moment, you meet one who loved you so much that he died on the cross for you. Where in that moment of, of salvation, it is where grace and truth come together. And I want to say if that's what you've not known. And I, I don't know, if you don't know Jesus, you've never known it. It is not found anywhere else. You can't tell me, well, that's just like my mom. No, it is not. I mean, you can love your mom. I understand. But no, it wasn't your mom. I mean, nobody has ever shown you grace and truth together. Jesus is the only space that's found. It's the only space that's found. But it is found there. He is fully true, holy, perfect, righteous, without sin. And he is fully love. And he is grace grace that pours out grace, and I invite you to Jesus, and if we've misrepresented that because we so often, you know, are off focus, hey, we're trying to make sure you see him, and we invite you to Jesus. So, again, just inviting you to that if you don't know Jesus, but now for those of you who do, I just want to give you a moment to pray, and again, it may be oversimplification, but I'm imagining if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in one of those three areas. You don't have it right, And if I haven't convinced you of that, I'm sorry, because I did try. Um, There's not anybody here this morning that's like, man, I got this. I I do this really, really well. I I do grace and truth. Got it down. Give me something else harder. That's not you. You You're not doing a good job with it. You You are either overly gracious or overly hard, or you're bouncing back and forth, and that's normal. It's not okay, but there ought to be a space that you look at it and say, God, make me more like Jesus. Draw me up this place where I could be both and, and where I flip-flop or where I keep missing it. God, draw me to that this morning, and I just want to invite you to ask him for that. Maybe there's something very specifically he's going to lay for you to do, you know, something that you need to step towards some situation in your life and think, man, I haven't been gracious or I haven't been truthful or, or whatever that would be. Just ask him for it because we long to show Jesus in this world. We long for the grace and truth of who he is to be known through us. So would you take a moment and ask him for that? I'll do the same thing, and then we'll close together in worship in just a moment.
Jesus, you are amazing. You are beautiful. In you, the glory of God known, full of grace and truth. It's the only space is known. Grace and truth only come through you, but I'm so amazed and grateful that it does. God, I pray for any here this morning that are outside of that relationship with you, that they don't know the truth or the grace. They don't know how bad off they are or how hopeful it could be if they just believe upon you. Would you bring both together in them? The truth that exposes, crushes, breaks, shows us what we are, but the grace that saves pours out mercy, pours out your love on us. I pray for these that don't know you, that they would come face to face with you and be saved. God, I ask for that. God, then I want to bring those of us who know you. And and I think about some of the hard conversations we've been able to watch take place between Paul and the church. And it's a hard space. God, you know it. We don't always handle this well. We think about specifically people who call themselves believers and yet are living in sin. And and would to your strength, we could handle that better than we are. God, help us to do better, to represent you well in that. God, I pray for those who, for lack of a better way to say it, they're just too gracious. Uh, They don't ever speak the truth and they just want to constantly give the benefit of the doubt and they miss confronting miss sometimes telling somebody that they're not okay like it's not okay for them to live that way and call themselves a Christian is not okay and God where that needed to be heard I pray that it would be heard and and that you would bring to full repentance you would bring to a clearing of ourselves that we'd say God as much as it concerns me I don't want to be one that miscommunicates that message help but then Lord I pray for those who are too harsh who kind of are once and done and and when somebody messes up they never want to receive them again and and the beauty of grace is lost and and the love that would restore and welcome home is not expressed God would you rescue those who are there and then those who kind of bounce back and forth because we never seem to be able to have that balance but God you have it you are it So draw us towards you tonight. Draw us towards you today, excuse me. Draw us towards you now that we would be those who speak the truth in love. That we represent you better than we are and that would be known through us. God, I ask for help in that, power in that, enabling in that, and again, honor you, Jesus, because you are gracious and you are true. May that be known in, on, and through us now. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God meet you in that. May he draw you to what he is and has for you. If you have questions, we're here. You can make your way up afterwards if you don't need to know Jesus. Maybe, again, this has showed you that you need him. Hey, we're here. Come up afterwards. Talk to us about Jesus. We'd love to pray with you and help you walk in that. But right now, we want to close in worship. So why don't you stand with me? We're going to sing and celebrate our God who is good and long that he would meet us. And I want to bless you. I'm going to bless you out of the blessing that we do almost every week out of number six. But I wanted to quickly highlight, if you don't pay attention to it, pay attention to it now. It's about grace and peace. It's about God coming upon us. And if we get it, 
it would be grace and peace. So here's the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and have peace.